If your sleep is messed up, I can assure you that there's something mentally or physically going on with you. I can assure you of that because it, sleep is almost the most reactive of the phases of, of life that we have because, it, again, you, you have to have very specific conditions in order for it to propagate. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today we are talking all about how to sleep your way to the top. Now, I don't know what you were thinking, but I was talking about physiological sleep. So get your heads out of the gutter, ladies. I interviewed Dr. Michael Bruce. He's a clinical psychologist with more than two decades of experience in the sleep field. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Um, Dr. Bruce is one of the only psychologists to pass the Sleep Medicine Specialty Board without attending medical school. And in 2021... Reader's Digest named him the best sleep specialist in the state of California. He's also the best-selling author of four different books, Good Night, The Sleep Doctor's Four-Week Program to Better Sleep and Better Health, The Sleep Doctor's Diet, The Power of When, Discovering Your Chronotype and the Best Time to Eat Lunch, Ask for a Raise, Have Sex, Write a Novel, and Take Your Meds, and his last one in 21 called Energize, Go from Dragging Ass to Kicking It in 30 days. Now, as you might imagine, we are talking about, I have, I had 28 pages of notes ladies, for this conversation and we did not get through it all. He's coming back for a second part, um, to follow up. We didn't even get, we, you know, we talked about all the things. So we start off talking about sleep phases and sleep drive. So the circadian rhythm to fall asleep at about the same time every single day and wake up at about the same time every single day. Um, morning or late afternoon, depending on your chronotype. We talk about pharmaceutical sleep versus natural sleep. So we talk about medicated sleep. We talk about CBD. We talk about Ambien and Lunesta. We get into chronotypes. So we talk about the different, the night owl, the early bird, and, and Dr. Bruce goes through his own nomenclature with the four different types and how we actually go through all of the chronotypes over the course of our lives. We talk about napping, to nap or not to nap. That is the question on deck that Dr. Bruce answers. We talk about optimizing sleep routines, melatonin, how much, how to take it, different types. Uh, we talk about the effect that melatonin has on other medication. We talk about how sleep is affected by fasting, time-restricted eating, and exercise. We talk, I mean, we get into the weeds with this one. I think that this is going to be a useful episode for anyone who 
uh, struggles with sleep. Maybe you need to have a glass of wine at the end of the day to sort of take the edge off. We talk about anxiety. We talk about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, truly a very robust conversation. And we talk about cortisol and anxiety. And I think that this is going to really help. He gives some really specific actionable items, specific dosages, different types of, let's say, uh, THC, pardon me, or cannabis. Very, very, very well spoken. And I think that this is going to be really helpful for you. So please share this far and wide. And without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor, I am thrilled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here. So in our pre-chat, I was telling you that I have 28 pages of notes <laughs> for our conversation. Highly likely, unlikely that we are going to get through all of it. Um, but you I'm going to give it a shot. We're get, yeah. And if we don't, <laughs> and if we don't, there will be, there will be a part two. There is just so many concerns and questions around sleep. And one of the things that I often say to, uh, you know, anyone who I'm, whether it's, you know, a a private client or I'm, you know, speaking on a large stage, one of the first dominoes when you're starting to think about optimizing your health, this is, it doesn't matter. I mean, certainly nutrition any better than sleep. Uh, To be fair, I love the, I love that you use word dominoes because Mm -hmm. that i personally believe that sleep is the domino of wellness, right? Because once you get sleep, everything else gets much easier because it affects so many different systems and so many different organs, so many different disease states. So I love the fact that you're using this idea of a domino, like what can we do first that can help so many other areas? And then we can continue to profit uh, along the healthcare line. I love Beautiful. it. Beautiful. Yes. All right. So first domino of health is going to be sleep. And I think just by way of educating our uh, audience members, our listeners, let's just, if you can generally talk about the sleep phases, I get a lot of questions on what's phase one, phase two, what is REM sleep? When does that happen in the night? Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what those are? Absolutely. So the way I think about sleep, so I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to do a little sleep 101 for everybody, right? So just some basic ideas of what's going on. So it turns out that there are two separate systems in the brain for sleep. One is called your sleep drive. The other is called your sleep rhythm. So let's break those down really quickly. So sleep drive is a lot like hunger, right? So I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. I eat something and then that hunger begins to dissipate. The same kind of holds true with sleep. When a cell eats a piece of glucose, something comes out the back end, 
One of those things is called adenosin. Adenosin works its way through your system and goes to a very specific receptor site area in your brain. As adenosin accumulates, you get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. Okay, that's part one of the process. But there's this whole rhythm side of things, what's called your circadian rhythm. Also somewhat similar to hunger. Ever notice that you get hungry around breakfast time, around lunch time, and around dinner time? Same holds true with sleep. Most people, at least here in North America, have a tendency to get sleepy somewhere in the 10 to about 11.30 range, right? So when your sleep drive is high and your sleep rhythm is, is synced, you sleep. But if either one of them is off, that's when you can have a sleep disorder or what I call disordered sleep. So I break it down into two different areas. So sleep disorders are things like apnea, narcolepsy, insomnia, formal diagnoses. But disordered sleep is, I went to that room in the back of the house, I closed my eyes for six or seven hours and I came out and I feel like crap. What's wrong with that scenario? That's the area that I have a tendency to look at uh, quite a bit. And it's important if you're gonna be in that universe to understand what sleep stages are and sleep cycles are. So that way we can start to understand a little bit more about what's going on with our sleep. Lots of people have questions. What are the different stages? What do they do? What do they mean? All of this kind of good stuff. So let's break it down really quickly right now. Stage one is a transitionary from wake to sleep. It doesn't make up very much of sleep, maybe one, 2% of the entire night. Again, it's a very transitory type of sleep. By the way, if we wake people up during stage one sleep, they will swear to you up and down that they were not asleep. Even though we can see their brain waves and they're humming along at that sleep brain wave, they think there's no universe where I was asleep. Stage two represents the majority of the night, somewhere between 50 and 55% of the entire evening is stage two sleep. To be really fair, there's some important things that happen in stage two, but it's really kind of the, the pre-show for stages three and four and for REM. The, the couple of things that stages two does that's really important are it emits these things called spindles and K complexes. It's not very important that everybody knows what a spindle and a K complex are, other than to know that those are things that are healthy for sleep, that can help with memory consolidation and can help with waste removal. When we get into stages three and four, or what we call deep sleep, by the way, stages three and four are called stage three, four, deep sleep de or delta sleep or beauty sleep, believe it or not. So that's the stage of sleep where we see true cellular repair. In fact, this is where we see the largest amount of physical restoration. So interestingly, during stage three, four is where we see the largest bolus of something called growth hormone emitted. So for folks out there who don't know what growth hormone is, if you're into longevity, growth hormone is like, you know, the, the elixir of the gods, okay? It's like the thing that reverses aging and makes you look young and makes your muscles fit, but it also helps with cellular repair. It also helps with our immune function. And right now we're all kind of making sure that our immunity is, uh, is jacked up because of all the stuff that's going on with the pandemic. And so stage three, four sleep turns out to be very important for us, especially during times of high stress, during times of high uh, medical incident, things of that nature. So again, stage three, four is that physical restoration that wake up and feel great sleep. Um, the last stage is called REM, which stands for rapid eye movement. Now folks out there might remember there was a band from Athens, Georgia. Come on, that was my best joke. I'm, I'm, wor I'm working hard. I'm working hard here, guys. So I actually went to the University of Georgia uh, and I actually saw REM play in a few uh, clubs up in Athens. So it was actually kind of amazing for me. You know, I but never put that together until just now. That, did they name their band after REM sleep? They did. As a matter oh, of fact. my goodness. I was like. I, I totally bombed on getting that joke. Normally I'm pretty good at it, but oh my gosh, I have just had a revelation. All right, continue. I'm happy to help out. <laughs> yeah. so, so REM sleep is that mental 
restoration, right? So interestingly, what we've now learned is this is where we move information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. Um, so what happens is our brain creates an organizational substructure, kind of like a filing cabinet, right? So you're getting data that's coming in through your eyes, through your ears, through your nose, through your mouth, and your brain's got to do something with this data because they need to, it needs to store it to then retrieve it to do things like ride a bicycle or you know work a computer or all these different things. So it has to create this substructure. Here's the problem. There's a tremendous amount of data that's coming in every single day. The process of actually moving the data from short-term to long-term, we call that dreaming. And that's our brain's physical representation of this data move or data transfer into more of a hard drive, if you will. Um, now, it's pretty interesting when you think about REM sleep and it's doing the mental restoration, but there's one other thing that's going on there that's also kind of interesting. Um, and you become paralyzed during REM sleep, actually, there's a whole period that's called atonia. And this is, uh, this is the point in the, in the interview where I say, do you want to know why? And then you say, yes, Dr. Bruce, I'd love to know why. And I say, so that you don't act out your dreams. So believe it or not, there are people out there who do act out their dreams. Um, I have a patient who's got this thing called REM behavior disorder. It's very interesting. So I'm originally, um, as I said, from a small town outside Atlanta, Georgia called Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm from a hunting community. If you're a hunter, you know that if you shoot a doe and you don't kill it, you either have to slit its throat or crack its neck. It's the most humane thing to do. This guy who's a hunter woke up with his wife's head ready to crack her neck. Oh my God. Oh yes. You cannot make this shit up. So what's the first question you have for me? Well, after that, after that story, like, what happened? Yes. What <laughs> exactly. happened? Yeah. Right. Everybody wants to know, did he kill her? Yeah. The good news is no lives were spared for this, uh, for the story I'm telling today. The second question I get asked most often is, are they still married? She is a patient woman. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, we actually figured it out fairly quickly. So having REM behavior disorder, there's a well-known treatment called clonopin. We used a half a milligram of planazepam and it silenced the behavior, kept him, kept him asleep, and it was great. But here's the interesting thing, and here's the reason that I tell the story, is um, in 35% of cases of REM behavior disorder, it's a precursor for Parkinson's syndrome. Mm. Right. And this guy had it, and he had it in spades. Mm. So what we had to do, it was great because before we saw any type of Parkinsonian symptomatology, we got him into neurology literally 10 years ahead of his diagnosis. And we literally changed the course of his diagnosis just by him acting out his dreams at night. And so the moral of the story here is while the stages are important and we'll talk about cycles in just a second, the thing to remember here is sleep is a window into our health. If your sleep is messed up, I can assure you if there's something mentally or physically going on with you, I can assure you of that because it, that it, sleep is almost the most reactive of the phases of, of life that we have, because it, again, you, you have to have very specific conditions in order for it to propagate. When we look at cycles, uh, it's kind of interesting. People go from wake to stage one, stage two, uh, stage three, four, back to two and into REM. And they have to follow that exact dance maneuver, believe it or not, in that order. If you wake up in the middle, you kind of have to start from the beginning. So this is one of the reasons why when people wake up after an hour of sleep, they're like, oh, I feel like I haven't done anything. Well, you kind of haven't because your brain starts you all over again. The other thing to know is sleep cycles end up being somewhere between 80 and 120 minutes. So 90 seems like a good average. And the average human has five of these sleep cycles. So here's where it gets interesting. People always ask me all the time, hey, Michael, you know, is eight hours a myth? 
You bet it is. The math doesn't even work on this, right? So if you have a 90 minute cycle and people have five of those, five times 90 is 450 minutes, which divided by 60 is seven and a half hours. So at the end of the whole thing, there's no universe where every single person on earth needs eight hours of sleep. It just doesn't work that way. Right, right. And have you ever, just coming back to that Atonia for a moment, have you sure. ever had patients who, who have woken up paralyzed? Because I, I can tell you that that, as you were saying that, that's <laughs> happened to me one, like, you know, not often, but once or twice where I've woken up and I'm like, I can't, like I'm awake, but mm-hmm. I can't so it's move. Called, yep. Yeah. It's called sleep paralysis. Um, we used to think that when people did that, they were crazy. Uh, mm. Now we don't any longer. So the good news is you're not crazy. Um, it's that Remetonia. Depends on who that, you ask. But, well, yeah. that's fair enough. I can. <laughs> I, we, we may have to go into some personal questions in a minute. Um, <laughs> but here's the interesting thing is that Remetonia seems to be left over. So what ends up happening is people are jarred awake or they've been asleep due to alcohol or another substance that's really put them out. And something is like, bam, and then all of a sudden they wake up and then they're literally frozen, like they Mm -hmm. can't move a muscle. The interesting thing is a lot of people tell me they think they woke up dead. So they think that they, so what they think is my body died, but my brain had just hasn't gone yet. And I've only got a few seconds left. I mean, it sounds pretty terrifying if you think about it. Here's the good news. Uh, This is a very common situation, almost exclusively due to sleep deprivation. Um, So the more sleepy you are, the greater likelihood it is to have one of these events. Interestingly, it is a hallmark symptom of something called narcolepsy. There is a a brain disorder called narcolepsy where people fall asleep a lot. It's called the narcolepsy triad. There are three different symptoms that are kind of interesting. Sleep paralysis, what we're discussing is one of them. The other uh, one is hypnagogic hallucinations. So seeing something just as you're falling asleep or just as you're waking up or something called cataplexy. Uh, Cataplexy is where you have a, a series of expressed emotion like anger or surprise, and then you become atonic. So, you know, if you tell a joke to a narcoleptic, they could literally fall to the ground because their body, their muscles would, would stop. And, and that's one of the sad things that almost all of my narcoleptic patients stopped laughing. Mm. Like, think about that for a second. Like, what if you had to stop laughing because your body couldn't handle it? Like how sad of an existence would that be? So there's Mm. a lot of interesting areas when we look at that, but yes, uh, sleep paralysis is certainly something that's fairly well known. And a lot of people freak out about it. Talk just for a moment about, so you're mentioning uh, sort of toxic waste and disposal in, yeah. in stage two. Talk just for a moment about the glymphatic system, which I believe is what you were referring to yep. and why that is so important as, and I'll, and I'll ask this question as a, as a piggyback on the sleep cycles. It's my understanding, or at least when I look at something like an aura ring, like how my sleep was overnight, it tends to be that I get um, up more of the deep sleep, let's say earlier in the Mm, night. That would make sense. And then the second half of my sleep is kind of, it's a bit lighter, but when does it, when does the glymphatic system active? Is it, did you say that it was just in stage two or is it all through the night? So no. So actually I said that it was in stage three and four. So that's in the deep sleep. Remember stage two is more spindles and K complexes. Um, So it happens primarily during stage three and four, but you have a great observation that I forgot to talk about. So thank you for reminding me. We have a tendency to see stage three and four in the first third of the night and a tendency to see REM in the last 
third of the night. So your observations on your aura ring, which I have one as well, full disclosure, I'm on their um, advisory board. Um, and uh, it's pretty interesting when you start to look at sleep tracking and sort of how does that kind of come through? You asked a question about the glymphatic system. So what's interesting here, I call the glymphatic system, the waste management system of the brain. Okay, because here's what happens is throughout the day, um, these things called uh, beta amyloid and tau, which are specific proteins, have a tendency to get up into your brain and materialize. And then what happens is, is they can actually strangle the nerves or they can actually cut off the nerves in terms of their nutrition. This is actually a situation called Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So this is the very earliest parts of it. And so it is directly, let me repeat myself one more time, directly related to the lack of stage three, four sleep. What this does is it takes that, that waste management system that's pulling all those proteins out and it lowers it, it lowers it by quite a bit. We've actually learned that during stages three and four, the glymphatic system is operating at 10 times its normal speed than when you're awake. So you really, we really wanna get people into that deeper stage of sleep, that stage three, four sleep, because that's when we get all of those good things. Not only do we get the physical cellular repair, growth hormone, but we also get the removal of all of those bad proteins. So we've been discussing up until this point, natural sleep, like what it looks like to have a natural, you know, rhythm and cadence with the different sleep stages and sleep pressure or sleep drive that you've been talking about. And one of the things that I often hear, um, either from practitioners uh, that I'm working with or, you know, patients, coaches, um, is that they need something let's say it's wine in the evening to take the mm -hmm. edge off, or, sure. uh, you know, if they're traveling, they have jet lag, uh, they need some type of medication, let's say an Ambien, mm -hmm. a Lunesta to, mm -hmm. to help them overcome the change in time, let's say. Okay. So my question here is, and actually I'll, I'll include one more cohort in here, which is <laughs> those who have insomnia. I know. You're just making this more <laughs> and more difficult. Uh, is medicated sleep better than no sleep at all? So in okay. other words, is, if question. someone is struggling, let's say with insomnia or they have mm -hmm. jet lag or whatever, is it better to get no sleep or, you know, maybe they take like, you know, we were talking about in the pre-chat, like a mild benzo or antihistamine yep. or something like that. Sure. So I have a lot of thoughts on this. This is a big question for me. So I'm going to have to break it out into a couple of different pieces if that's okay. Yes. So number one, I want to be very clear. It is okay to use a pill to sleep. All right. If you and your doctor have come to the decision that you need a pill to sleep, I am not here to talk you out of that. That is a decision between you and your doctor. And I want to be super duper clear about that. I will tell you that there is a very big difference between pharmaceutical sleep and natural sleep. We see it in the sleep labs all the time. I know the second I walk through the door, if somebody's on an antidepressant, if somebody's on Ambien, Lunesta, I mean, you name it, you can see it right there in their EEG oftentimes, right? So I, I would say to answer your question, what would we rather have somebody, it depends upon how long and where they are in the cycle. So as an example, if somebody turns to me and they say, Dr. Bruce, I haven't slept in five days, we need to give them a sleeping pill, okay? Because there's something going on and we need to basically interject and take that crisis and stabilize it, right? 
I think sleeping pills do a great job of doing something like that. Where I don't like sleeping pills is the long-term use and the both physical and psychological dependence that occurs. Now, when you're thinking about, okay, I'm not sleeping so well, what should I do? There's a whole host of things that people have a tendency to do to try to make themselves sleep better. Oddly enough, the number one sleep aid in the world is alcohol. Uh, more people drink themselves to sleep than any other thing out there. So let's start there and just kind of round that out. Then we can go into antihistamines, OTCs. Then we can go into melatonin, herbal, and then we can go into um, pharmaceuticals if you'd like. Great. So yes. when we talk about kind of thinking through this idea, the very first thing I, well, let me back up even one step further. So when somebody shows up in my office and they're like, hey, doc, I want a pill. The very first thing I want to do is blood work. All right. And I'll tell you why. If they've got a magnesium deficiency, a vitamin D deficiency, an iron deficiency, or a melatonin deficiency, I got to fix that first before I start adding, you know, shit on board and not knowing what it's going to do. So I'm the type of guy um, who says, let's get things going naturally at the par level to make sure things are okay. Let's say we do the blood work. You're low on magnesium. We give you some magnesium. It helps, but it doesn't fix the situation. You still got something going on. Okay. Fair enough. Let's take a look at what's going on. Now, you asked the question, is it better to have no sleep or is it better to have some sleep? I would argue it depends upon where in the cycle you are. So if you let's say you're sleeping for four hours a night on a fairly regular basis, I think cognitive behavioral therapy is a much better option than something like a pharmaceutical at that point, because I can with cognitive behavioral therapy, I can continue to stabilize you and slowly inch out your sleep schedule. To be fair, it takes a little while. It's not like taking a pill and wham, <laughs> you know, it knocks you out that night. But again, the, here's the problem. When you take the pill and wham, it knocks you out. Even if we use a pill that's not particularly physiologically addictive, if you haven't slept well in 10 years and I give you a pill and you sleep like a stone, I got news for you. You're going to want that pill again and again and again. So there's right. a massive psychological component that comes with this. And I also want to be very clear about something. People who don't sleep are desperate. Okay. And you've seen it in your practice. I'm sure you've talked about, I've talked about it with your colleagues. When somebody is not sleeping well, they are irrational. They are desperate. They are, they don't know what is going on and they're making poor, poor decisions. So they grab for the bottle of beer, they grab for the glass of wine and they start pounding and seeing what happens. So let's be clear. What does alcohol do to sleep? Alcohol makes you fall asleep quickly. It quickens sleep onset latency or the time it takes you to fall asleep. However, I got news for you. It beats the crap out of slow wave sleep. Remember that sleep that we were just talking about that has the glymphatic system in it and has all the physical restoration. By the way, this is one of the reasons why people have hangovers the next day is because alcohol has messed up their sleep so bad, they're feeling the qu poor quality sleep as well as of course the dehydration, which comes from alcohol because alcohol is a diuretic. Once you drink it, break the seal, you're peeing all night long <laughs> and that's disruptive to sleep as well. I've got a lot of people who are saying, oh, I'll drink a six pack and fall asleep. Newsflash, you're going to be peeing all night. You're not going to get great sleep. So alcohol is really not the best option. I will tell you this. I don't mind having an adult beverage with dinner. I, don't, I like scotch. I like wine. <laughs> so how do you do it and do it successfully? Remember, every, it takes the average human approximately one hour to digest one alcoholic beverage. So let's say we're out to dinner. And, you and that's order like a four glass. ounces, six ounces. When you About say one, one beverage, six ounces. Okay. Let's say yeah. six ounces. So yeah. let's say you and I are out to dinner and you order a glass of wine, right? At 630 at night. 
have your glass of wine, then have a glass of water again to help you with the hydration component. Yeah. Then it's uh, let's say it's almost seven o'clock. We have uh, the meal's almost done. We have a second glass. I order a scotch. We're all fine. It now it's seven thirty. You have your second glass of water. Now you've had two alcoholic beverages. If you wait two hours after the last alcoholic beverage, guess what? It's already out of your system. We're done at let's say we're done at dinner at seven thirty. It's nine thirty. You can go to bed by ten o'clock and have no problem there, right? So you see what I did is I take one glass of water for each beverage and one hour for each beverage. But one, the big thing I want everybody to hear is you've got to stop it too. Here's what happens, because when you have more than two alcoholic beverages, you catch a buzz. When you catch a buzz, it means your body jacks some cortisol up there because your brain doesn't understand why it's going toxic. And now you're an energetic drunk, <laughs> which is not particularly helpful for bedtime. So limit it to two, two glasses of water, wait two hours, you're good to go. And that can happen every night. It would be great if it didn't. Okay. Okay. Like to be clear, I'd rather you be social about it. If you find that you need alcohol to relax or to go to sleep, you probably should have a discussion with your doctor about needing something for that because it could be an anxiety issue or it could be a sleep issue. Could be either or, and it's not going to be easy to tell if you're drinking yourself to sleep every night. Right. The second thing that a lot of people do is they go to the drugstore and they go to the section that says sleep and they buy an over-the-counter sleep aid. Usually it's something with a PM attached to it, right? It's an analgesic with a PM on it. Here's the good and the bad news behind all of that. If pain is messing up your sleep, this isn't the worst option I've ever heard of. Okay. Now, to be fair. I wouldn't be taking it every night. There is now long-term study data, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this. There's a 10-year study looking at use of Benadryl consistently across multiple uh, multiple administrations during a week for 10 years. So what we're talking about, just to give everybody an idea here, is the PM part of Advil PM and Tylenol PM. It's just Benadryl or what we call diphenhydramine. What's interesting about this, and this is an antihistamine, also known as an anticholinergic medication. What's interesting about antihistamines is they kind of give you fuzzy drug head, but they don't actually help with sleep. They make you relaxed enough to then fall asleep. But here's the problem. In this 10-year cohort follow-up study of people using um, anticholinergics on a regular basis, they found a direct causal relationship with Alzheimer's. Let me repeat myself. If you are taking Tylenol PM or any PM medication on a nightly basis, you are walking down the path of Alzheimer's. Very few people know this. It is not well cited in the literature. There's enough data for me to say it very confidently and consistently. Also, let's be fair. If you're rolling through a box of Benadryl a week or a box of, you know, a bottle of Tylenol PM, newsflash, it's not working for you anymore. I'll tell you a funny story, Steph. I was uh, I was the sleep expert for WebMD um, for about 15 years, and I used to do a message board. This is really dating me now. I'm back in the day when they had message boards, um, and um, once a month, I would get the I would get the uh, question: Is it okay to take a box of Benadryl a night? Whoa! Oh, shit! A box wow. a night. That's 18 10 milligram tabs. The answer is no. It is not okay <laughs> to take a box of Benadryl a night, but one stops working. So you take two and two stop working. So you take four. And before you know it, you got a fistful of Benadryl. You've habituated to, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, not, yeah. and it's not good guys. So that's not the answer either. The third area that a lot of people start to look at is cannabis. 
So if you live in California or one of the medicinal states or even one of the recreational states, I think there's about um, going on 26 um, states where it's medicinally legal and maybe 13 or 15 where it's recreation. I'm not sure. We can always look that kind of stuff up. But a lot of people say, hey, I want to smoke a little pot and go to sleep. Here's the deal. There's a big difference between getting stoned and going to bed, right? And so if you're going to try to use marijuana in any form, whether it's CBD, CBN, THC, CBG, whatever, um, you need to think about it as a medicine, not as a recreational drug. So it's not about getting high. It's about slowly relaxing you enough to allow the natural sleep process to take over. I also wanna be clear about something. There is no data, I'm sorry, there's one study on CBD and sleep. And what it says is you need to take 160 milligrams of CBD a night. Yes, that's almost a full bottle in 90% of the cases that I've seen. However, there is something kind of cool about CBD. CBD is interesting because it lowers inflammation and that helps with pain. And it also seems to lower anxiety. So here's what I think is the way to do it. If, you, if anxiety is fueling your sleep problem or if pain is fueling your sleep problem, CBD might make sense. But I want to be clear, it only works tangentially. CBD ain't making you sleepy. It's reducing your pain or it's reducing your anxiety, which is allowing you to sleep. If you really want a marijuana constituent that's been shown to help with sleep, you need to look at something called CBN as in Nancy. CBN is oxidized THC or what we like to call as old weed. Okay, so remember back when you were in high school and you bought a bag from your buddy and uh, you had a I have no bag. idea what you're talking about. I know you no. don't. I know you don't. But, I, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm exposing myself here on this. Yeah. On this. And um, you buy the bag and uh, you use it for the weekend. Then you forget it. And you throw it in the back of your closet to hide it from your parents. Then you forget about it for like three months. Right. And you come back and it's brown. We used to call that dirt weed. I don't know. Uh, not that you ever participated in anything like this before. But if you happen to, you might have called it dirt weed. And whenever you smoked it, you almost immediately fell asleep. That's because what happened is, is the marijuana actually oxidized because it's been in the presence of oxygen and it turns brown and that oxidation turned it into CBN. That one constituent appears to have a lot to do with sleep and can be quite helpful in that process. So if you're going to go to a dispensary and look for something, here's what I'm going to tell you. Number one, it probably needs to have some THC in it. Yes, you heard that correct. It probably needs to have some THC. This is to help lower your anxiety levels pretty significantly because that's usually what's going on here. But I don't want you getting stoned, okay? So you want to have low amount of THC, but it needs to be present. And then you want to have equal amounts of CBD and CBN. So if you were going to look at a ratio, here's how I would look at it. I would say two milligrams of CBD, two milligrams of CBN, one milligram of THC. If you were looking at it from a ratio perspective, that's really something that could be helpful for sleep. Once again, we really don't want you to get stoned before bed. Also, the higher you get in terms of psychedelic high, we know that your heart rate increases and we know it decreases REM sleep. So again, not good for sleep when we get into those high, high levels of THC. Low levels of THC, again, where you're not getting that recreational feeling can be very beneficial. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. 
Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. The final area is melatonin. <laughs> Um, and you know, supplementation and all of those things. Now I briefly touched on supplementation, um, when I talked about vitamin D magnesium uh, and iron, because again, I want those things to be at par levels before we start adding anything to the body and seeing what's going on here. Um, but melatonin is an interesting one because a lot of people don't know this melatonin is a hormone, right? So you wouldn't walk down to your local GNC and buy testosterone. I mean, maybe you could, if you could, <laughs> I know a lot of guys would love to buy testosterone, but uh, it's not available. And there's a reason for it is because it can be dangerous. And it's, it's something that needs to be monitored and dosed appropriately. Here's the thing. The melatonin dosage in the United States is off tremendously. So this is crazy. In 1994, Dr. Wortman at MIT found the correct clinical dose of melatonin. And it's somewhere between a half and one milligram. Oh, you'll never see that on a bottle. That's right. That's the problem. (laughs) You see like five milligrams, mm -hmm. 10 I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And and so here's the crazy part. People don't know this. Melatonin affects other medications. It affects anti-depression medications, anti-hypertensive medications, diabetic medications. Augments them or attenuates their effects? It can be either or. Mm. And birth control too, by the way. So, Right. It's a problem. Here's what's also interesting. Many people don't know it, but melatonin is by prescription only in Europe and at high dosages, it's a contraceptive. Melatonin is a contraceptive. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's crazy. So here's the, so I know exactly what you're thinking. You're sitting here thinking, holy shit, there's a lot of people out there taking melatonin. They have no idea what's going on. Well, I'm thinking my teenage girl, like teenage girls. That's exactly where I'm going next. Yeah. I do not recommend melatonin in teenage girls ever, ever. I can't think of anything worse to enter a young female developing body than a contraceptive when it's not indicated. So right? do we see menstrual cycle alterations with you these bet. women? percent. Yeah. Depending upon how high the melatonin is, you can. Absolutely. It's a circadian pacemaker. Anything that's on a circadian rhythm, it can change right? So we know the menstrual cycles on a circadian rhythm. We know the fertility cycles on a circadian rhythm. So when you take a circadian pacemaker, guess what happens? It messes with it. So people just aren't thinking about it that way. And you also represent, you also said something that I thought was really interesting. You said, you'll never find it. You're right. Most melatonin is now sold in an overdosage format. Mm. I can barely find it in anything smaller than three milligrams. I, I do want to tell you, I have a friend, I have no relationship to his business, um, but he makes the only plant derived melatonin low dose at the right uh, option. It's called herb atonin. You can Google it or look it up or whatever. We can put it in the show notes. If yeah. Yeah. I'll find it for the show notes. Um, but it's herb atonin. It's the only one that I recommend. And I love it because it's plant-based because then I'm not worried about the synthetic aspects because synthetic melatonin doesn't actually work as well as plant-based melatonin. That's a whole nother area. But I know this was a long-winded way of saying, what should you do? Should you take a pill or not? 
Here's what I would tell you is it depends upon where you in are in your process of not sleeping. If hopefully this conversation has helped you identify where you are, do yourself a favor. And if you can, talk with your general practitioner about what's going on. There's an entire area that we haven't spoken of that's called cognitive behavioral therapy. I've mentioned it briefly, yeah. um, but I do want to double tap on that really quickly because this is a non-pharmacological way that works better than pharmacy. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of data. I mean, we're talking over a hundred studies looking at cognitive behavioral therapy or how we think about sleep changes our way to sleep. So a lot of people say to me, it's like, oh my God, Michael, if I don't get eight hours, it's going to rip off years off the back end of my life. Or, you know, my whole day is going to be ruined. That's called catastrophizing. And that's something that we look at in cognitive behavioral therapy to help people think differently. Because here's the bottom line. When you get less anxious about sleep, you sleep better. 75% of sleep problems are anxiety from on the insomnia side of things, I would argue. And so once we can figure out ways, shapes, and forms to get people to slow down, de-stress, their sleep gets a lot better. It's it's so interesting you say that because I, I feel like with the advent of wearables and being able to track things, I almost feel that paradoxically, some of the anxiety that we have around sleep has almost gotten worse where you have someone that'll look, let's say at their phone and say, oh, I'm only getting an 85 so or a 70 or whatever. And I should have gotten a 95 in order to be peak performance versus auto regulation versus saying, how do I? How do I feel? Because sometimes, and I love, I love the Oura Ring. I'm not, I'm not, but this is the one, this is the one I use. So I'm just, sometimes it'll tell me, oh, you, you know, didn't sleep well last night or had you restless or whatever. And I feel like a million bucks. So I'm like, I'm still going to go and do all the things that I was supposed to do today. I'm going to still do my workout, still get my son in the morning, but I, I, I'm checking in with myself and I still, um, rate that, let's say, higher than what the algorithm is is punching out or what it's spitting out at me. And not to say that it's not accurate, I think. Oh, no, it's not accurate. Let's be very clear. Sleep is a complicated process. I mean, think about it, Steph. When we put people in the sleep lab, and I'm sure you've ordered sleep studies on your patients before, right? 27 electrodes, two respiratory belts, video cameras. How do you think we can get all that into one ring, right? It's impossible. So we all have to understand a few things about sleep tracking. Number one, it ain't gonna be that accurate. The best one on the market actually turns out to be the Aura Ring because they did head-to-head -head studies. Aura and Fitbit are the two that have actually done the best for falling asleep, waking up, and total sleep time as measurements. Aura then went on and matched against what's called full nighttime polysomnography. So that's actually a sleep study and they're 85% accurate to full PSG, which is pretty good when you think about it. I mean, collecting data off of her finger and being able to algorithmically get there, I think can be helpful. But you also kind of talked a little bit about something that's called orthosomnia. So this is a situation where people track themselves to death, okay? They're like, oh crap, I got an 89 and I didn't get a 92 today. Like relax. Okay. Sleep is, it's got fuzzy borders. Okay. It's not, it doesn't have to be a precise event every single day, every single time. You don't have to worry about how much did you clock or did you not clock? Your body's a really good determinant of what's going on with itself. When I wake up in the morning, I just kind of ask myself one to five, where do I feel? If I'm at anywhere from a three and a half higher, I'm in good shape, yeah. <laughs> right? Love you that. know, yeah. it's like, I think things are going kind of well, right? And so again, I want people to be very, very clear. Tracking can be helpful um, if you're trying to monitor something in particular, or if you just want to get a general idea. But to be 
very fair. If, if a patient turns to me and says, hey, Dr. Bruce, I'm checking my ring every day. I say, take it off. Okay, stop, relax. You're anxiously making your sleep even worse with your level of anxiety and your OCD, because a lot of people are kind of OCD, especially when it comes to things like sleep optimization and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Let, let's talk a little bit about chronotypes because I know you've, you know, you've written, you've written the book on it. Um, and I, <laughs> I kind of did. Yeah. You'd be the guy to ask. So, um, I know that we've all kind of heard of a night owl, an early bird, um, Let's talk about what a chronotype is. My team is, uh, so I have a fully remote team and I know that for example, myself, I'm usually up and kind of up and at it at about seven. I have some members on my team that they are not on Slack. They are not available until about 10 AM. Those are the uh, wolves. Those are, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, and then I want the one uh, I'm thinking of in particular, she kind of takes a break midday. So she starts at 10, takes a break midday, and then she has her best work at night. Uh, so she will be like, I've signed off. My brain is dead at about four or five o'clock. And then she is like working seven, eight, nine, ten. She'll come up with a new website the next day. She's like, I did this overnight. So can you talk a little bit about some of the different chronotypes? And then maybe for those of us who have coworkers or we are employers of these different chronotypes, how we can begin to recognize them and alter, let's say, maybe their work schedules to match that. Mm -hmm. So it's actually interesting because that's how I ended up writing the book. Um, so I'm going to take a step back and tell everybody, number one, if you want to figure out what your chronotype is, go to chronoquiz.com. We'll have it in the show notes, but it's super easy, chronoquiz.com. And basically, if you type chronotype into Google, you pretty much come up with me anyway, because I'm the chronotype guy. Um, so that's number one. So what are chronotypes? These are genetic so a lot of people don't think that they are, right? So a lot of people say, oh, I'm, I'm going to wake up early and become an early bird. Good freaking luck, okay? Because it's, it's just not in some people, right? And so it turns out there's 74 different markers for sleep. There's one in particular that really I like to look at most, and it's not the only one, but it's probably the best one for this example. It's called the PER3 area of the, of the human genome. And so what we see is a single nucleotide polymorphism or what's called a SNP. So what happens is, is you're supposed to, it's supposed to have certain building blocks are supposed to be in an order. When it's flipped one way, you turn into an early bird. When it's flipped another way, you turn into a night owl. When it's correct, you're in the middle. So this has been well-known, well-established. So I had a patient who came in, very interesting woman. And I want to be clear, I failed. I mean, I failed, failed, failed. She, we couldn't get her. We tried every cognitive behavioral therapy. We tried drugs. We tried it all. So I said, come back in. Let's chit chat. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the diehard clinical interview guy. I'm going to figure it out if, with enough questions, as long as I just keep asking questions. And so uh, she turned to me and she said, Michael, I wish I could sleep in. This was when I was practicing in on the East Coast in Georgia. She said, Michael, I wish I could live in California. Like, what do you mean? She said, California time is perfect for me. I can go to bed, you know, later here and it's earlier there. And I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> I was like, so why don't we just change around your schedule? And she said, well, I got to be honest with you. It, what would be ideal is if I woke up at nine um, and I went to work at 10 and then I worked from 10, maybe till six or seven. And then I came home and I was like, great. And she said, my husband won't stand for it. My kids won't either. And my boss won't either. So she's like, I don't think there's a universe where this can happen. I said, well, can I call your boss and ask? She said, I don't know. He's probably going to fire me at the end of the week. I was like, come on, how bad could it be? So I called her boss. Sure enough, 
He was like, you can do whatever you want. She's fired on Friday. This was Monday. So no pressure, right? So I had her coming in at 10 and leaving at seven. I called him on Friday. The first words out of his mouth were, I got three more employees I want you to talk to. Mm. So -hmm. what was happening is she was an extreme night owl, okay? Um, She was somebody who didn't want to, her brain didn't go to bed until two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. So it was really hard to identify somebody like that. So once we started to understand a little bit more what was going on, I was like, holy crap, I wonder how many of my patients I thought were one thing turned out to be another thing, what we call a dolphin. So early birds, I changed, oh, by the way, I changed the um, vernacular. So, you know, I'm not sure why they called them bird names. You know, like early bird night made sense, bird. night yeah. owl made sense, but in the yeah. middle, they called them hummingbirds. I never quite got that. Hmm. I don't know why. Um, and when we were working on the book, you'll appreciate this. When you're sitting around a table with the, at the publishers and you're trying to figure out what to name this avatar, because basically we created a quiz and we wanted people to take the quiz and fall into a category so they could personalize themselves and learn how to kind of do this thing. So one person wanted crystals, one person wanted colors. I wanted animals because I figured animals are a good thing to relate to. Here's the thing. Nobody wants to be a porcupine. You know, (laughs) nobody wants to be a platypus. So I had to find animals that not only were things that people would aspire to be, but also maintain the right uh, chronotypical schedule. And not be judgmental about it. Exactly. So early birds turn into lions because who wouldn't want to be the queen or king of the jungle, right? Mm -hmm. So lions are my early morning optimists. These are oftentimes my COOs. Um, These are people who like to make a list every day and go from step one to step two to step three. They like to wake up at 530 in the morning um, and they're kind of militant in their thinking. I'll be honest with you, though. They're not much fun at parties because by nine o'clock, they're dead. I mean, they've been up since 430 in the morning. So like socially, Lions, it isn't so great. The middle ones are what used to be called hummingbirds. We call them bears. Um, Bears are what I call solar sleepers. So they've got a good sleep drive, meaning they like to get up around the time the sun comes up and like to go to bed around the time the sun goes to bed or maybe even a little later. But they're my go to bed around 10, 1030, wake up around seven o'clock in the morning, people. Based on some of the things you've said, you might you might be a bear or you might be an early bear. I haven't decided yet. Yeah, I think I'm an early bear. I wake up at about six. Like I wake up somewhere between 5.45 and 6, and then I get up at about 6.15. Yeah. So you might be, you might either be an early bear or a lion. I'll have to see. Well, we'll okay. get to that in just a okay. second. Yeah. Um, the third category um, is wolves, or they replace night owls. So I am a wolf. I have been since I was a very young kid. Um, my whole family are actually wolves. I remember when I was eight years old, I'd walk into my parents' bedroom at 11 o'clock at night wondering why I'm up at 11 o'clock at night, but that's because I'm a night owl. And both of my parents would be there reading a book, watching television, all the lights would be on. It wouldn't be anything abnormal. So I've always been that way. Um, We have a tendency to be the artists, the actors, um, the entertainers. um, Because when you think about it, when you talk to somebody who's in that creative place, they never say they got inspiration at two o'clock in the afternoon, right? It was always two o'clock in the morning, right? And that that woman that you were talking about who makes a website in the middle of the night, right? Like yeah, yeah. that's the type of people that do that. So now to be fair, I haven't told you anything that you don't already know, right? Early birds in the middle, night owls, right? That's pretty standard. It's been around literally since the dawn of time. The part that I added were these, these people called dolphins. So interestingly, genetically speaking, there are people who have a genetic erratic sleep schedule about 10% of the population. So this is not a small number of people. Um, And my dolphins, I like dolphins because um, I don't know if you know this, dolphins sleep uni-hemispherically. Yeah. right. Half of their brain is asleep while the other half is awake looking for predators. I thought that kind of represented insomniacs. 
right? In sort of a, a nice way. And plus, who doesn't want to be a dolphin? Like they're the cutest animals ever, right? And apparently more smarter than humans. I mean, that's that, what I hear. So I've been yeah. told. So I've yeah. been told. So when you think about it, that turned out to be a category that made a lot of sense. But let me give you a little bit of basics on them. My, my dolphins are a lot like my lions. They get up very early. However, they've got a good bit of anxiety to them. Um, they have, they're oftentimes labeled as insomniacs. Sometimes they've got a little obsessive compulsive disorder, just a little. Um, and a lot of times they're like the people who won't finish a project because it's just never done type of person. Um, they might make a list and they would go from step one to step two to step three. And then they'd go through the list again from step one to step two to step three. So they're very, you know, rigorous in their thought process, but usually have a decent amount of anxiety behind them. Once you figure out what your chronotype is, one of these four, and maybe you can just tell from um, the description that I've given here what it might be. Here's where the magic happens. Is it literally unlocks the perfect time of day to do absolutely anything and everything you possibly want to do? Yeah, I teach people the perfect time of day to have sex, eat a cheeseburger, ask their boss for a raise, go to bed, like literally, you name it. And it's all based on hormones, right? So think about it. If you wake up early, let's say you're a lion and you wake up at 5.45, 6 o'clock, well, your melatonin turns off, all your other hormones turn on, and they go in a very predictable pattern. Actually, it's such a predictable pattern. I can tell you what time of day the hormones are naturally in a place where you could do an activity and do it at your best. Here's the weird part. As a wolf, I have the exact same thing. Mine's just three hours later. There's just a phasic shift that's exactly. happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it gets super interesting really quickly. So let's say your partner is an early bird and you are a night owl, right? How do you communicate? How do you, how are you intimate? How do you talk to the kids? Like there's all kinds of different issues that get really interesting really quickly once you kind of have this secret key. I love that. So how does, and one of the, um, as you were talking about some of these different types, I know that I have, I have three boys. I have a 17 year old, I have a almost 12 year old and a nine year old. And my 17 year old has really changed. So he used to be someone who got up a little earlier and now he is not up before, uh, you know, call it nine o'clock, you know, I mean, on a school day, we're like, you're going to be late. So at which, I mean, maybe there's another conversation to be had about shifting school times and high schools later, but can, can you maybe talk a little bit about how these chronotypes, let's say change over the arc of someone's life, if they do at all, um, cause I know that my, my 12 year old now, like the most juicy thing for him is like, oh my gosh, it's a Friday night. I get to stay up late. Like they just love this idea of staying up late and I don't want to be up late. So I it's, don't blame it, you. Yeah. All right. So let me tell you about your boys. Okay. So number one, they sound awesome. I'm excited to hear more about them. The older one is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. So it turns out we have this thing called chrono longevity. Believe it or not, we go through all the chronotypes. So if you think about it, right, when your boys were babies, right, they were lions. They went yeah. to bed early. They woke up early, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? When they're toddlers and middle schoolers, they're bears, right? They're kind of going to bed when the sun goes down, coming up when the sun comes up. And you kind of start to understand when they hit adolescence, they turn into wolves, right? So I don't know if you did this. When I was in high school, are you kidding? I never went to bed before midnight, one o'clock. I was up all night. Right. Was, yeah, I was up all night. Yeah. 
right? So, and that's, again, this is natural. And, and you mentioned school start times. This is a very important conversation that we can have at another time, which is we need to change school start times because lots of kids are falling asleep in first period when we should actually have them come to school a little bit later and they would do significantly better. Yeah. Um, but again, very normal. So I want to be clear, both of your boys are in their normal phases. Um, when, uh, when your older son hits probably around 20, 22 or so, that's when he'll lock and load into whatever his quote, adult chronotype is. But then uh, when you hit, uh, so I'm 54 years old. When you hit uh, 55 age range, guess what happens? Your melatonin starts walking backwards. So you ever notice how your grandparents want to have dinner at like 5.30 in the afternoon? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah Even my parents now, they want to have dinner like really early. Yeah. They're turning right, into right. the grandparents. Yeah. Exactly. So what's happening is, is my chronotype is now going backwards. So in the early stages, it appears to go forward, right? Lion to bear to wolf. Now it seems to be going, then you go through your existence. And then at, at the end, you seem to go from whatever it is to earlier, right? So maybe a, if you're a wolf, you become a bear. If you're a bear, you become a lion, things like that. Dolphins are the people that I wrote the book for because they have the most messed up sleep. Um, and so once I can usually get their sleep, uh, you know, kind of consolidated in, in one spot, even if it's only for four or five hours, then I can sometimes their true chronotype will come out or they just have a messed up chronotype and then we fix it. And so as you're aging, let's say 50, 55, where we start to see this like stepwise decline in, in melatonin, is there, is there an advantage then if you've done the testing and you can determine that there has been this change? I would can, take melatonin at that point. You would t- okay. That would be, my, that's my question. That's would you going, start right? taking, yeah. yeah. Would, is there a benefit to extending, let's say the, the d- default chronotype that you are? Yeah, I think there is. Um, and it's not a, it's not an unhealthy thing to do because as long as, so let me back up and do one caveat, which is I'm okay with you taking melatonin as long as your doctor knows it. And as long as it's not affecting your other medications, because remember, once people get to hit 55, 60, sometimes they're on a boatload of drugs because they got a lot of other stuff going on. So it's okay, but really be thoughtful about it. Also, Steph, can I go backwards a second? We're talking yeah. about melatonin. We were talking about melatonin in kids and how I said, never, never, never. Yeah. I want to make one caveat there. There is significant data to show that melatonin in autistic kids and kids on the spectrum at higher dosages is highly effective. Um, and so that is an area where we do see melatonin use in the three to five milligram range um, that can be very, very effective for them. But as a general guideline, I don't put melatonin in anybody under the age of 18 ever. Great. And so is this why if you're, if you're living a life, let's say like your, your original patient who said, I just wish I could live in California, you know, I wish I could live on Pacific time versus Eastern time. Is this why some people paradoxically feel more tired, the more that they sleep? Is it because of that mismatch? So there's, there's a whole host of reasons why people have a tendency to feel more tired, the more that they sleep. Um, one thing is, is if they've been sleep deprived before their brain is kind of aching for more sleep. So as an example, you ever take a nap and feel worse, not better after yes. you take a nap, like you're just like, Oh, I can't too long when it's longer than 15 minutes. It's it, I, yes, it's worse. Well, what happens is you get into a deep stage of sleep and then you're screwed, right? Yeah. Because you try to wake up at a stage three and four and it, it isn't going to happen. So I, that happens to some people a lot. And it's this circadian mismatch that absolutely, I think you correctly identify that makes people feel logy, sleepy, kind of not at their best when they sleep too much. All right. Let's, let's talk about team nap, team nap or not to nap or not to nap. That is the question. Here's the deal. If you've got insomnia, don't nap please if you're a dolphin 
If you're a dolphin, napping is out for you because remember the very first thing we talked about sleep drive versus sleep rhythm. When you nap, you lower sleep drive. If you're a dolphin, your sleep drive isn't that great to begin with. Do me a favor, make my life easier. Don't nap. Okay. Now, if you're a normal human that, that and you're one of the other three chronotypes, napping could be just fine and might be a good way to supplement sleep. If depending upon what your schedule is, right? Let's say you had to wake up for a flight. You only got four hours. I don't think I care if you take a nap on the airplane. Um, but Again, think about the nap, think about what you wanted to accomplish and think about how you want to do it. So I created a system called a Napa Latte, all right? <laughs> Napa Latte, yeah. So if, here's what you do is you take a cup of black drip coffee, okay? Throw three ice cubes in it merely to cool it down. Slug it, then immediately close your eyes and take a 25-minute nap. So remember when I was talking about adenosine in the very yeah. beginning of our podcast? Yeah. yeah. If you look at the molecular structure of adenosine and the molecular structure of caffeine, they're off by one molecule. That's it. One molecule. It's kind of amazing to me that the thing that makes you sleep and the thing that makes you awake are so damn close. Um, so here's what happens is if you drink the caffeine and close your eyes, you burn through the adenosine that's kind of sitting over in that receptor site. The caffeine is waiting in the wings. It fits perfectly in. You're good for four hours, guaranteed, every the, single time. And the and so I know that there's some genetic variation in terms of uh, caffeine metabolism, but generally caffeine has about a half life. Let's say of was it six hours, six to eight hours, depending on the person. Okay. So you and don't so, want to do a napa latte past two p.m. <laughs> okay, so that's really great. So one of the one of the things I'll often counsel uh, patients on is have, especially uh, you know the the dolphins, let's say, who have a hard time sleeping, is we want to increase that sleep drive, as you were saying, as much as possible. Um, and I often will say to them, no caffeine afternoon, like because even like even if you have like something at 12 o'clock, you still have about 50% of it hanging around at six, right? And so even by like 10, 11 o'clock, you still have a little bit of yeah, that. Do you know kinda... what the quarter life is? 12 hours, 12 hours is the quarter life of caffeine. Okay. So if you have a cup of well, coffee at 10 o'clock yeah. in the morning, 25% of it still floating around your system at 10 o'clock at night. Right. Right. And if you're a dolphin, right. dude, go decaf. Right. Like that's what I tell people all the time who are anxious people and, and kind of in that dolphin esque. But they say to me, oh, I'm so tired in the morning. I just need some. You, you don't. I swear you don't need some caffeine. If I could get most people off of caffeine, that would be great. But I'm not so foolish as to, as to sit there here and say everybody needs to go off caffeine. But if you really want to see a dramatic improvement in your sleep quality, go decaf for two weeks and you'll see it. I want to be clear, though, if you are more than a three to four cup a day coffee drinker, do not cold turkey yourself off of caffeine. I've had two patients end up in the ER. Oh, it is. It, I've, I've detoxed off like the headaches. I mean, I haven't ended up in the ER, but the headaches are just wicked. How much caffeine do you drink? I, I, I've just tried to, I like a, a shot of espresso in the morning. I like to oh, go outside, listen to my little birds chirping, Perfect. get some sunshine, a shot of espresso, and I'm good for the day. Oh, that's amazing. That's actually yeah. a great morning ritual. One of my yeah. three morning rituals is I have people drink 15 ounces of water, spend 15 minutes in the sun mm. and uh, take 15 deep breaths. So you're almost oh, there. That's great. I love that. And then how much caffeine? So I actually have never done the calculation in terms of how much caffeine is in espresso, but what so is that? Espresso the is less, believe it or not, than a regular cup of, cup of coffee. A regular cup of coffee is 110 milligrams of like regular, uh, what is it? Brewed drip coffee. I think espresso is like 75. Okay. So and I think so you're a little bit less. 
what is the, so what is the kind of range, let's say of like total caffeine consumption that you might want someone in one sitting or just as a, for the whole day? So if you were looking for a guideline or a recommendation, here's what I tell people all the time. If you can keep it below 250 milligrams for the entire day and stop caffeine by 2 PM, you're probably good to go. That's great. And so I also like, and I don't know if this is just, you know, I have. I'm learning a lot about you, Steph. Yeah. <laughs> like, tell me, oh my, am I doing it right, Doug? Uh, one of the things I like to do as well is I actually like a little siesta, but it's like, I could just, I just want to be out in the su- in the summertime. Of course, I like to just be outside, you know, well, you're in one Canada, o'clock, 15 never minutes. warm there. You need to get outside. <laughs> yeah. For the, for the one week that it's warm here, we do take advantage. Uh, no, but it's summertime here now. So I just love outside, mm-hmm. like 15 minutes and I feel amazing. So I, I'm going to try the Napa latte. So I'm going to try the caffeine. Would you put something like L3 and eight in it or anything, or just like straight, straight up coffee? So with I some would ice? do straight up coffee. Um, what she's talking about is magnesium three and eight, um, which can actually help. Or were you talking about um, L, L-theanine? I was talking about the magnesium, but we can also actually L-theanine would be another one because I, I know a lot of people will put that in their coffee Correct. to kind of take the Help the with buzz focus. Off. Yeah. yeah. And, and take the buzz off. And by the way, what we're talking about here, L-theanine is um, one of the components of green tea that is found to be um, both relaxing and focus inducing. So it makes you relaxed and focused, which is kind of cool. Um, believe it or not, there's a product out. I've worked with it before called Napjitsu. And it actually, instead of taking a cup of coffee, they give you caffeine plus nootropics. So it's caffeine plus ashwagandha, L-theanine, and a couple of other things, which is kind of an interesting way to, to start to do it. But as a general guideline, um, what I tell people all the time is, look, let's not get too fancy here. It's a cup of drip coffee with three ice cubes in it. Slug it, close your eyes, sleep for 25 minutes, if you sleep. A lot of people say, hey, Michael, I can't sleep. I don't care if you sleep or you don't sleep. It's really about time away right? So Mm. here's the thing. We never get time away, right? We're being, you know, somebody's tugging on us, you know, it's a kid, it's a coworker, it's whatever. Somebody is always, always, always trying to get our attention. If you can take one or even two 15 minute, like as you call them siestas, but just timeouts, the data is very consistent that it is super duper helpful. There's now uh, data on something called non-sleep deep rest, which is kind of cool where you're just lying in a quiet room, right? Dark, no noise, but it's beneficial. It's not exactly like sleep. I mean, it's rejuvenative, but I mean, I would say an hour of that is probably worth about 20 minutes of sleep. Um, so for folks who wake up in the middle of the night and they're like, oh shit, it's going to be terrible. You know, think through that idea of relaxing, getting some non-sleep deep rest because it's actually helpful. So I like the 15 minute, but is there a maximal time that you would say? So we've talked about the sleep cycle being about 90 minutes in total. Correct. Would you recommend it not to be longer than 90 minutes or just short of 90 minutes? So here's the deal is you want it 25 minutes or less, 90 minutes or, or, or about 80 to 90 minutes period, right? And here's why. Once you get past 25 minutes, you go into deep sleep and then you feel like shit when you wake up. Yeah. So really do yourself the favor and keep it at 25 minutes or less. I have a timer on my phone that will ring. And even if I have barely fallen asleep, it doesn't matter. You're still getting the benefit. The other one is the full sleep cycle, right? Which is the 90 minute nap. Um, I recommend those for some people as well. Again, it's only in instances where it's like, oh crap, I only got five hours of sleep last night. 
you know, and, and then I can, I have the time to do it during the day before 2 PM. Once again, if you take a 90 minute nap after 2 PM, there's almost no universe where you're falling asleep unless you're drinking yourself to sleep. Right, right, right. I know you also wrote a book on uh, fasting and exercise and sleep. And I wanted to make sure that we had some time to talk about that. I often find that, well, let me ask you first, how is sleep affected by fasting and or time-restricted eating, if at all? So it is dramatically. Um, One of the things that we see is during the fast, people are much more alert Um, and people comment on it all the time. They're like, holy cow, I haven't eaten anything all morning and I feel wide awake and able to get my shit done and things like that. So one of the things we know is during the tail end of the fast, there is a large alertness component that seems to come in, which can be very beneficial for probably the late night wolves like myself in the morning times, or even some of the um, the people who have difficulty in the morning. Um, it also depends upon the length of your fast as to how it affects you and what you eat during your fast can also have a pretty big effect on your sleep and your sleepability. Obviously, if we could just get everybody to eat whole foods, that would be amazing. Um, however, um, it doesn't look like it's going to happen that way. Um, so many people eat stuff from a bag in a box. It's unbelievable. And that's really where we're seeing the preservatives and the, and the refined sugars really taking their toll because it does, it does, there's a lot of data now to show that it does increase inflammation. And we know that inflammation messes sleep up pretty bad. In fact, I would argue that there's even some cases where it could cause sleep apnea secondary to uh, inflammation in that whole area, which is kind of interesting. There's actually two studies that are looking at this right now. And what about, um, I've often found that I sleep best on an empty stomach. So I make sure that I'm not really eating, call it two to three hours before, you know, my bedtime. I do 90 minutes as a general guideline for people, but here's the thing. Carbs make people sleepy. Okay. There's a reason we call them comfort food. It's because they increase serotonin and that makes us feel good. So just kind of look at what you're having. I will tell you this. A lot of people can't go to bed on an empty stomach. They they need something in their stomach. So what I tell them is look to get a 250 calorie snack, make it about 75% carbs and about 25% either protein or fat. Right. So what I'm, what am I talking about? I'm talking about an apple with some nut butter. I'm talking about a rice cake with a couple slices of avocado on it. Right. Like I'm not talking about rocket science here, just something to make your stomach settle a little bit and give you enough carbs to kick in that serotonin, which then relaxes you right into sleep. Right. But do yourself a favor. Don't go to bed hungry and be careful about what you eat. Spicy foods can give you nightmares and indigestion, which can of course mess up your sleep as well. And I've often found that when I, when I sleep late at night, I'm hot. Like it's just, you know, like the digestive process just doesn't allow for my, let's say, core body temperature to, to be where it needs to be. And well, what's interesting about that is everybody burns their metabolic fire at a different temperature. Um, and so depending upon what you eat, the fire can be stoked higher or stoked lower. I don't know if you've noticed, but there might be some foods that if you eat later, actually you can do okay with, whereas some foods are not so great to eat too late at night. I find that dairy and high, high, high fat things are the things that really mess me up late, late, late at night. And my problem is ice cream. Ice just going to let it out there. Just going <laughs> to let you know, ice cream is my problem. <laughs> and what about, is there any, you know, when we're, when we're, if the snack is more than let's say the apple with the nut butter or the rice cake with the avocado. Cause I know, for example, there's, you know, there's a lot of Americans that listen uh, to the show. We also have a pretty hefty European uh, following and it can be the case, let's say in France and Italy and some of these Southern European where they're really eating late at night. So we have this jump in, let's say blood flow to the digestive system. 
Is there any change that we also see in, in cortisol levels, uh, eating late at night and does, and can that affect your sleep quality? Absolutely. Remember like, like here's the way I like to think about it. So if you went out into Latin America, right, you know, what do they do halfway through the day? They have a siesta, right? And so this is an entire culture that works on a different timetable than all of us do. Right. And so what you can see is they'll also eat later. So their dinners aren't at six or seven, their dinners are at eight, nine, and 10. Right. And so that's not too dissimilar than kind of what you're talking about. It's really about flow into the 20, 24 hours of your system. One thing that people don't know is the timing of your food is also a circadian pacemaker. So it's not just that light comes in and changes your circadian rhythm, but your digestion and the times in which you eat are very important. I try to tell people all the time, if you can regularize your wake up time and your meal times, everything else is gravy on the taters. Everything else is easy to work with because it's just, you know, you've got a regimen, your body knows what it's supposed to do, when it's supposed to do it, and it does it effectively and efficiently. Yeah. Well, these are the peripheral clocks. I think you're talking, we have like sort of the master, you know, suprachiasmatic nucleus. And then we have, you know, the gut and the liver, which are sensing nutrients that are coming in as well, which are, yeah, there's, yeah. believe it or not, there's over 300 circadian clocks in the body. That's crazy. That's incredible. I know. Yeah. <laughs> there's circadian rhythm in your skin. There's circadian rhythm in your hair. There's circadian rhythm in uh, every system. Like sleep is kind of crazy. I mean, it affects every organ system and every disease state, literally everything you do, you do better with a good night's sleep. Everything. What about exercising too late? Talking, just speaking about cortisol, is there, is it bad cortisol to exercise? Is the problem exercising too late. It's heat is the problem. It's the core body temperature. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so for everybody to understand what happens is your core body temperature rises, rises, rises until about 1030 at night, then it hits a peak and it has to dump that fall is actually a signal to your brain to release melatonin. So if you exercise too late at night, your temperature isn't going to drop, which means your melatonin isn't going to kick off. And remember, melatonin is kind of that key that starts the engine for sleep. So the big thing I tell people is, look, if you can, don't exercise within about four hours of lights out. Now, I want to be fair. If that's the only time that you can exercise, I don't think I have a big problem with you exercising, but you've got to remember something. Your core body temperature is going to be high. So maybe put your cardio at the beginning of your workout and then weights at the end of your workout. So your core body temperature is starting to slow down. Maybe instead of taking a piping hot shower, maybe you take a slightly cool or a cooler shower, maybe even do a temperature challenge in the evening, again, to lower that core body temperature as quickly as we possibly can. Um, but I don't have a huge problem um, with exercise at night, also depending upon the type of exercise, right? So you could do yoga and stretching and that's, trust me, that, that can be a serious workout and it can be something that doesn't necessarily raise your heart rate if you don't do hot yoga as an example. So I think there's a lot of different ways that you can go about doing this that can be uh, worthwhile. So let's talk a little bit about optimizing your wind down routine. So we've talked a little sure. bit about, you know, you mentioned hot showers. I always thought that there was a bit of a rebound effect that happened when you took like a really hot shower to help, like to help lower, maybe you have, I, I no, no, no. so you you're right, but it's a bubble bath. So, because you have to actually be almost completely submerged to get your core body temperature hot enough because standing in a shower, it's really difficult to do. So right. what she's talking about guys is for some people with insomnia, what I'll actually do is have them take a hot bath about 90 minutes before bed, which raises their core body temperature up. And then when they get out of the tub, it subsequently drops their core body temperature. That's different than doing it with exercise for sure. Okay. So what are, what are some other ways that you would recommend 
um, optimizing irrespective of the time, you know, it's your, whatever your chronotype is, what are some general principles that we can be thinking about as a wine, as you know, ritual and a cadence for our wind down routine. So I created this thing. I call it the power down hour. So let's say your lights out is midnight starting at 11. Here's what I'd say you do to chop that hour up into three 20 minute segments. 20 minutes for just shit you got to do, right? So finding sports equipment, getting backpacks together, right? You know, if you've got kids in the house, you've got to get, because you want to make your morning as easy as possible. 20 minutes for hygiene. And by the way, for anybody out there that wears makeup, here's a little tip is a lot of people don't take their makeup off until the very last thing of the day. And they're sitting in front of a bank of lights and they're literally bathing in blue light before they're about to go to bed. Newsflash, this is a terrible idea. Take your makeup off at six o'clock in the evening. And if your partner can't handle it, tell them to get over it. Because <laughs> I, I want you to be able to not have all of that blue light hitting you so freaking hard, okay? So 20 minutes for hygiene, and then 20 minutes for some form of meditation, relaxation, prayer, um, something to get you there. I try to explain to people all the time, you need runway to land the plane. Okay. And if, if you're bobbing your head in front of the television and then go to bed and wonder why you can't fall back asleep, it's because you're not giving yourself the right entry path in order to do it. Just allow yourself the time. Like it's an indulgence, like relax. It's the end of your day. You don't have to get a million other things done. Oh, and here's another big thing that so many people do. That's just stupid is they say, oh my gosh, I didn't get all my water in for the day. And so they drink three glasses of water because they think they're supposed to have a certain amount of water every day. This is the easiest way to mess up your sleep because you will be peeing all night long when you do that. Um, and I can't count the number of people who I've helped by just saying, can you stop drinking fluids 90 minutes before bed, please? It works out great. Unless you're diabetic, talk to your doctor. Yes. I love that. The other thing that I do, and I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I generally run cold. So I try to keep my temp, my bedroom uh, colder, uh, but I put socks on because my feet are too cold, but my body is fine. Right. So my, you know, my core is fine, but my, my toes get too cold. So I often will just put on like a, you know, pair of warm woolly socks, which is, you know, my husband loves that too, because my feet are ice cubes. If I don't, right, and he doesn't want them touching him. I don't blame him. So right. here's what I talk to people about all the time is when we've got couples who have thermoregulatory issues, that's what we like to call it, um, <laughs> as opposed to marital strife, um, is, <laughs> yeah. um, is you know, what do you do? And so there's a couple of different mechanisms that are pretty simple that you can work on. You've already identified one, which is your feet. So I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you're too hot, if you take your foot and you put it outside of the covers, you instantly cool down and your life gets a whole lot better. Turns out you got, you don't have any hair on the bottom of your feet. So you're feet dissipate heat more than just about anything. So for you, if you're a chilly one at night, some big woolly socks are going to actually be a great, great idea. However, I would say you don't want necessarily, unless it's during the winter months, flannel pajamas on top of that, right? Because what happens is it's very difficult to regulate because you've got so many layers on it and it's all encapsulating your heat, yeah. right? So uh, sometimes, and this is going to sound strange, sometimes I have people who are naked with socks on, Right. Because what it does is it allows their butt. <laughs> That's <right>. me. Okay. <laughs> totally so see, me. there you go. So yeah. that allows the regulatory mechanism to occur from here down, but without freezing out your toes. Now, the other thing is I have some people who are hot even when they're naked. So I have them sleep with their feet out from under the covers. And that actually helps quite a bit. Um, the thing that people don't realize is underneath the covers creates a microclimate. 
right? And so as your core body temperature rises and falls throughout the night, you sweat. Well, there's no place for the humidity to go. So it just gets encapsulated and trapped because literally you have covers up to here. And oftentimes they're kind of heavy, right? So all of the humidity is literally surrounding your body. Of course, you're going to get night sweats. Of course, you're going to get uncomfortable. So having your feet out from under the cover sometimes can actually be a real lifesaver. I remember once Marilyn Monroe, she was asked, you know, what do you wear to bed? And she's like, I just wear a little Chanel, you know, number five is what she said, something like that, insinuating that she's like, she sleeps naked with just a little bit of perfume on. And that's me, except it's like, I just sleep with, you know, my, (laughs) my thick woolly socks. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. Because it helps. Yeah. Well, and it works. And I mean, and I think one thing that people should realize is if it works, that's okay. Right. Like as long as it's not doing something detrimental to your health, as long as you're not like boozing it up before bed, I don't think I care if you wear socks, you don't wear socks, like figure it out for you. It's it's one of those things that if you get it right, it really pays back the dividends. And what if you have a partner that disturbs you overnight. You must hear this all the time where you have, let's say someone is like snoring, they're turning and tossing overnight. Do you recommend that people sleep in separate beds? I know that there's a huge stigma with that. Is there, or, or what do you think? So, um, here's what I can tell you is we used to call it a sleep divorce. I don't like that term. Um, because it really makes it seem like the, the, the marriage is over. I'll fully admit uh, three to four nights a week. I sleep in the guest room and three nights a week. My wife sleeps upstairs and I'll tell you why we have two French bulldogs and a big screen television and it's on all night long. And she sleeps with one dog on either side of her. And she's done this her whole life. So it's almost impossible for me to break that situation. So I go up there on the weekend and I put the dogs off the bed and then we can have our time together. And then I sleep in the guest room during the week and then I can sleep well because I'm the sleep doctor. I kind of need to get my rest. You know what I'm saying? So I don't necessarily have a problem with things moving around, but sleep compatibility, it's kind of a big deal. Um, I've always wondered why doesn't match.com like ask people sleep questions? Don't you oh, think yeah. they should? They like, totally should, like, should. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Like, wouldn't you want to know that before you got in a bed with some or even have a relationship with somebody? But snoring in and of itself, I think, is the big noise problem that we hear, whether it's from a bulldog or from a bed partner. And the thing to remember here is, number one, listen to the snore. If you hear it stop for a small period of time, this person could have a life-threatening disorder called sleep apnea. No fooling around. Call their doctor. Get them in for a sleep study. You do not want somebody sleeping next to you who is snoring with undiagnosed sleep apnea. The data is actually interesting. If you sleep next to an undiagnosed apnea person, you lose almost a full hour of sleep every night. You, not them, you. So I tell people this all the time. If you've got a noisy bed partner, listen close it could be a problem. Let's say that they don't have sleep apnea, but they still pretty loud. A couple of things that you can do. Number one, tell them to lose some weight, about 5%. So a 200 pound person, if they lose 10 pounds, they'll lower their uh, snore by almost 20 full decibels, which by the way, when you're sleeping right next to it is tremendous. So a 5% body fat loss can be very helpful. Also, turning them in the different direction and forming a pillow wall between you and them. Remember, sound is a matter wave. So if you have a pillow wall, it'll bounce right back and they'll get their snore in their face. Newsflash, they'll turn over and they'll bother you a whole lot less. Um, Other things are internal nasal dilators. So I don't like the external breathe right things. I like the ones that go up in the nose because they're far more effective. Or there are uh, mouth guards that can be helpful for snoring. But again, if you think you got sleep apnea, please, please, please get it checked. I have so many more questions for you, but I know that we are running on time. We didn't even get to perimenopausal women. I'm going to have to have you back 
for part two, if you are willing, because this has been so fascinating. <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I had a, I had fun time doing it. So absolutely, I would. it would be my absolute honor to come back. Okay, wonderful. So we will have everything that you mentioned in the show notes, clickable links. Thank you so much. This was, I know this is going to be so helpful, so much actionable tips here. Dr. Bruce, thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. And for everybody out there, if you're looking for me, head on over to www.thesleepdoctor.com. You can follow me on all the social. I have the same handle on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And I don't even know the other ones. Instagram. I think there's another one out. TikTok. So yeah, just oh, yeah. follow me. Well, I give all kinds of good hints. Awesome. And we'll make sure that this is all like all of your handles where we can find awesome. you, thesleepdoctor.com. Uh, that'll be all in the show notes as well. Thanks. Sweet dreams. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 